God's Word is true from the beginning to the end. And if you listen regularly to Encounter God's Truth, you know that we spend lots of time on both ends of the Bible, the Alpha as well as the Omega. Dr. John Whitcomb loved to teach on biblical creationism, apologetics, and Bible prophecy, but he also loved the middle of the Bible. So he took six years to teach through the entire book of Acts, verse by verse, presenting his findings each spring at the Independent Fundamental Bible Conference held at Middletown Bible Church in Middletown, Connecticut. Whitcomb Ministries wants to be sure to thank them for allowing us to bring you this valuable material here now on this scripture-upholding radio and internet outreach. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd, and today we conclude a message called From Antioch to Antioch, taken from Acts chapter 13, and the very first sermon that is given to us from the Apostle Paul. To learn more about this section of the book of Acts, you can download a free commentary co-authored by Dr. Whitcomb and Pastor George Zeller of Middletown Bible Church. Find it in our free resources available at whitcombministries.org. And if you want to hear all of the messages from these now five volumes of this ongoing series, Acts Witness of the Early Church, you can access them from anywhere when you go to sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. Right now, please look with us at Acts chapter 13 as Dr. Whitcomb finishes taking us from Antioch to Antioch. Remember, Barnabas went up to Cilicia to find Paul, who had been there for years after his conversion. Maybe it's been disinherited by his parents, of whom we know nothing. Maybe he'd been beaten in a synagogue. Maybe he had been killed and was caught up to the third heaven or something. All kinds of things happened during those years that Paul was up in Cilicia his, and Tarsus, his hometown. But Barnabas came up and, and commissioned him, as it were, to come down to Antioch and help in the ministry of the word. Barnabas was a great godly leader, but uh, a greater than Barnabas is now here. Paul, the 13th apostle, <laughs> born out of due time, but born nevertheless <laughs> into apostolic ministry in a certain sense. Now, the 12, as we'll see in a moment, are still a separate, distinct, unique group of men. But in a secondary sense of apostleship, Paul, and as a matter of fact, Barnabas too, are commissioned and endorsed and honored by God. Okay, now here we go. When Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia. Now they're at the southern tip of what is today Turkey. And a tragic event happens. John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. He couldn't take it anymore. What was wrong? We're just speculating. We don't know. One thing is this. Paul, in a sense, never forgave him for abandoning the ministry. I'm not saying that uh, they weren't ever reconciled, but I mean for this act, for this choice, John Mark was discredited by Paul. Okay? Why? What did he do wrong? Well, we can speculate that when he saw, you know, they had 110 miles to go across mountainous territory here, robber-infested, dangerous land. I mean, Paul knew something about this area, see, from childhood. Getting up here, and maybe maybe there was sickness or disease or some other kinds of threats. Whatever it was, friends, in the light of eternity, maybe God will show us someday, John Mark collapsed. And uh, that hurt. That hurt badly. 
okay, and went back to his mother in Jerusalem. Oh, John Mark, why are you here? We thought you went off to uh, a mission field with Paul and Barnabas. Well, mother, I'm just so sorry, but uh, you don't understand what happened, etc. You know what, friends? We have all kinds of Christian workers that have failed in the ministry, apparently. But the good news of John Mark is what? He is later reconciled. He's later accepted by Paul. Peter nourishes him, in a sense. I mean, Barnabas nourishes him back into, into a, a good standing of usefulness for the Lord. Years went by, and he is recovering from that colossal failure. So I say, well, Lord, all of us have failures if we just are honest about it, but God doesn't give up on us that quickly. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this story. There's one thing that's so amazing about the book of Acts. God doesn't cover up anything that's evil, sinful, or bad. Okay? Goodbye, John Mark. Goodbye. Okay? But, verse 14, when they departed from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down, and after reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. He didn't know what he was asking for. You don't say to the Apostle Paul, if you happen to have anything to say. <laughs> Paul was capable, as we'll see later at Troas, of speaking how long on one occasion? All night long, until people started falling out the windows. <laughs> if you have anything to say, speak. Well, thank you very much. I just happen to have a 10-hour lecture right now. <laughs> May I remind you, that what we have in all these verses here is a drastic reduction, summarization of the lengthy speech he gave, which has some similarities to what the way Peter preached in Acts 2, condemning the rulers of Israel and yet giving the gospel clearly, similarities to how Stephen preached in Acts 7 with a long introduction from Old Testament history, coming to Jesus at last as the climax, the ultimate fulfiller of everything. Oh, how many would be willing to pay, let's see, $100 for a genuine audio CD of Paul's lecture at Antioch of Pisidia. Think of it. Well, what God wants us to know about that sermon is here recorded. Here we go, friends. Are you ready? Verse 6, 15, Ye men and brethren, the ruler of the synagogue that rulers had said, speak. And Paul stood up, not Barnabas again. Watch it. Paul stands up and beckons with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. And then he rehearses Old Testament history, with which I'm sure we're all very familiar. Uh, let me move rapidly down here, friends, as he tells about the call of Abraham, verse 17, and Isaac and Jacob, our fathers, he calls them, okay, and how they were in the exodus from Egypt, verse 18, and the 40 years of wandering, and how they conquered the promised land under God, and then came the period of the judges, and down to Samuel the prophet, verse 20, and all this took about 450 years from the time of Jacob down to the judges. And afterward, now here we're getting down to the issue of who the king of kings is. Watch the build up here. Verse 21, afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul. Now that's his own name, remember, because he was of the tribe of Benjamin, so his parents named him after the first king of Benjamin, of Israel, who was a Benjamite. Okay, 
And when he had removed him, because of his total failure, you remember, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. In spite of all his colossal sins, David was God's choice to be the true king of the theocracy of Israel and the ancestor of whom? Of Jesus through Mary. Okay. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will of this man's seed. God, according to his promise, raised up unto Israel as Savior, Jesus. Now here, of course, we know the background of that statement, don't we? Uh, from Second Samuel 7, where God says, From your loins, sir, David, I'm going to raise up a son who will never depart from me forever. Psalm 89 confirms that by an oath, you will be the progenitor of my son. And uh, Psalm 132 confirms that oath of the Davidic covenant, that from David will come God's son, his human nature. Okay, All these Old Testament passages come to the forefront here, do they not? Now, the one who came to announce the son's final appearance was the greatest man who had ever lived, John the Baptist. You say the greatest man who ever lived. You know what Jesus said of him? No man ever born of woman is greater than John. Now that includes uh, David himself, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of Daniel. No man ever born of woman is greater than John. He was a burning and a shining light. Friends, he was an absolutely spectacular, faithful God-honoring witness to the Lord Jesus. And concerning Jesus, he said what? Look at this. Verse 25. He said, I'm not he, I'm not Messiah, but behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. He is infinitely superior to me. Infinitely superior. And of course, his own disciples, then he turned over to Jesus I'm not the bride, but you will be, and I'm not connected with the bridegroom like you're going to be, he said to his disciples. As a matter of fact, here's how great John really was. He said, he must increase, but what? I must decrease. I'm fading out. Now, that was hard. That was hard for John, because he was the embodiment, the incarnation, as it were, of Isaiah 40. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. He came to announce the kingdom. He preached with power, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. And he's the fulfillment of Malachi 4.1, uh, 3.1, that he is the messenger who's going to prepare the way for the Savior. Yes, but he never lived to see the kingdom. He never lived to see the Savior being inaugurated in his kingdom. And in a weak moment, he said his two disciples to Jesus and said to him, I'm sure with tears, as he's in a dungeon now, ready to be beheaded, said, are you he that's to come, sir, or should we look for another? And Jesus very tenderly responded, look at all these people that are being healed. Everything's fine, John. The kingdom's under control, thank you. And now here's this one. Blessed is he who is not offended in me. See you later, John. Au revoir.
goodbye. So sad. Nothing wrong with John. He didn't fail. Israel rejected him. In fact, he was so great that Jesus said, if you had accepted him, he would have been what? Elijah. He would have been. Okay? Well, friends, John the Baptist said, I'm nothing compared to Jesus. And you say, now, wait a minute. How are they supposed to know about John the Baptist up here in Antioch? Did you know that by the time Paul and Barnabas got to Antioch, John the Baptist was well-known all over that part of the world? Apollos, way down here in Egypt, was a disciple of John the Baptist and believed what John said. Okay, you ready for this? There were about a dozen men here in Ephesus who were also disciples of John the Baptist years before Paul ever got there. John the Baptist's ministry was spreading all over the eastern part of the Roman Empire. That Messiah is coming, he's coming, he's coming. And those people hadn't even heard that he had come. See, so he is saying to these people at Antioch who doubtless had heard of John the Baptist, a greater than John has come. I am here to tell you who he is. Okay? Verse 26, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, you Jews, and whoever among you feareth God, you Gentile proselytes to Judaism, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Oh, so sad. They that dwell in Jerusalem, verse 27, and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. In other words, just like Second Corinthians 3 says, Whenever Moses is read in the synagogue, what happens to their heart? A veil covers them so they can't see the Savior. Isn't that awful? Still true. Still true, friends. A veil in their hearts. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. Of course, Pilate said he's innocent. I can't believe as a Roman official that you would condemn an innocent person. Luke is very careful in his book, you know, to vindicate the official righteousness of Jesus legally before the Roman government. He's not an insurrectionist at all, and Christians are not here to overthrow the government either. No. No cause of death in him. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Now, friends, it is astounding how much the Old Testament says about the death of Jesus. I'll just quickly uh, remind you of some of these, okay? In Psalm 22, a thousand years earlier, his cry for the cross, which was what? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The jeering and the mockery, verses 7 and 8, the piercing of his hands and feet, Psalm 22, 16. The soldiers gambling for his clothing, Psalm 22, 17. None of his bones broken, Psalm 34. Accused by false witnesses, Psalm 35. Betrayed by a familiar friend, Psalm 41. Bearing reproaches from his enemies, Psalm 69. Given vinegar and gall to drink, Psalm 69. Beaten and spat upon, Isaiah 50. People did not believe in him, Isaiah 53, 1. Jews rejected him, Isaiah 53, 3. A vicarious sacrifice, Isaiah 53, 5. He bore our sins, Isaiah 53, 6. Silent before his accusers, Isaiah 53, 7. He was with the rich in his death, Isaiah 53, 9. The list goes on, excuse me. 
He died with criminals, Isaiah 53, 12. He came riding on the colt, the foal of an ass, Zechariah 9, 9. Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11. His side was pierced, Zechariah 12. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. In spite of all of these statements that should perhaps have provoked a slight curiosity, a little bit of attention, reflection on the part of the Jewish leaders, they hated him with indescribable hatred that can only be attributed to satanic demonic blindness and crucified him. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, as we've read from the Old Testament, they should have memorized by long before. They laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. Oh, friends all over the Christian world. We remembered that event, didn't we? Everybody who's ever lived has died, but Jesus is alive. Thank you. And he never will die again. Behold, I am he that liveth and was dead, and, and I'm alive forevermore. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You're very impressive. You're alive. Okay. Glorified. Okay. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. Now, friends, that is Paul's Tribute to whom? The twelve. I'm not one of the twelve, says Paul, but there were twelve witnesses who spent three and a half years with him and walked with him and ate with him and after his resurrection for 40 days saw him and they were appointed by God, most of them Galileans, of course, who walked with him those years to be witnesses of his integrity and his truthfulness and his genuineness and all of his claims. Of course, Paul didn't qualify to be one of the twelve for those reasons. Now, at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter is established. So how many witnesses did God provide for his son? Twelve. What more could you want? And we declare unto you glad tidings how that the promise, the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten. You remember back in 23, a Savior, Jesus, that's a quote from 2 Samuel 7, He will be my son. And so here in Psalm 2, 7, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, referring to his resurrection here. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies, literally the holy things of David, Isaiah 55, 3, based on what? Verse 35, listen. In the Psalm 16, thou shalt not suffer thy holy one, see, the holy things of David refer to the holy one who will not see corruption. Now, wait a minute. That's significant. Notice the emphasis on corruption here of a dead person. That verse 35, he will not see corruption. But what happened to David, verse 36, he died and saw corruption. But he, verse 37, whom God raised up, saw no corruption. May I make a suggestion? That when Jesus died and was in the tomb those days, he did not see corruption. His body did not begin to decay like every other dead person who's ever died, including Lazarus. God finished his humiliation 
when Jesus said, it is finished. And he was put into a rich man's tomb. His body didn't begin to corrupt. And of course, his relationship to the Father was reestablished, having been set aside during those three hours on the cross. And Jesus entered into victory, even though he went down temporarily to Sheol Hades to make certain announcements. But he didn't go there to suffer anymore and never has and never will again. So on the basis of these amazing statements, friends, Paul puts the nail right through the hearts of these men. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Now here's something very shocking to his listeners. By him, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. That did it. Are you implying, sir, the law of Moses is no longer relevant, is no longer essential, is no longer the ultimate means by which we're to approach a holy God? And Paul knew what was coming when he said that. So he said, Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, you despisers. Hey, is this a great way to end a sermon? <laughs> you despisers and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Of course, that's Isaiah 53, 1 also, isn't it? Who among us ever believed the things that were preached among us? Who of us ever believed and saw the hand of the, the arm of the Lord? Very few. Very few. And, verse 42, When the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached unto them the next Sabbath, and when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who spoke unto them, persuading them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Friends, why would they do that? Was Paul inaccurate in his quotation of Old Testament scripture and reciting Old Testament history, his application of the message to their hearts? No. But you see, friends, they were jealous. Did you notice that word? They were filled with envy. Now, in Romans 11, Paul says one of the reasons why the branches have been broken off of the olive tree of blessing, namely Jews, and Gentiles have been grafted in is so that they will be provoked to what? To jealousy. When they see Gentiles by the thousands and now by the millions coming to Jesus and their theocracy has been smashed. Okay? Provoked to jealousy. Well, I mean, they had some good excuses for rejecting the message, didn't they? They could say, well, Paul, whoever you are, you yourself admitted it. All of our rulers in Jerusalem who were there and saw Jesus and heard Jesus didn't believe him, did they, and crucified him. So what do you expect us to do? Just because you said something different. But the real reason you know, friends, don't you? Their heart was hardened by sin and they sank into the darkness and despair of unbelief. And I say, Lord... I'm just so amazed at the capacity of the human heart to, to reject the light, suppress the truth, turn away from the gospel, the good news of salvation. 
And uh, this is why Paul, of course, said later in Romans 11, concerning the Jews whom he loved deeply, willing to die for them, he said, they are enemies for the gospel's sake. But what? But they're beloved for the Father's sake. They're still objects of God's purposes through the unconditional conditions of the Abrahamic covenant. Now that is a conundrum, folks, a dilemma that is very heavy, even today. But thank you, Lord, for giving us this record of this initial thrust into the Gentile world, official thrust into the Gentile world with a life-transforming message of the Savior of the world who died and rose again on behalf of those who believe in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we believe everything you've said by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit who authored this precious book. I pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Timeless Truths for Changing Times. You've been listening to it from the comforting voice of our teacher, highly respected Bible scholar, Dr. John Whitcomb. Though he's now with the Lord, his ministry continues to impact us here on earth through this radio program, Encounter God's Truth, and on sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb, where the learning continues around the clock. And be sure to check facebook.com slash Whitcomb Ministries for all the updates we have to share. Until next time, for everyone at Whitcomb Ministries, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Glad to have you on this, another Encounter into God's Truth.